final, final talk of this evening. Uh, we've now moved from uh, research, education, and now onto history. So our speaker on this topic is uh, Graham Nelson, who has been uh, at this college for getting on for 20 years, providing teaching uh, in a variety of different subjects uh, across pure mathematics in that time. He's also a very accomplished person in his own right, from uh, moving to Oxford from Cambridge to do a, a PhD in uh, geometry. Uh, during that PhD, he decided uh, one evening, I think, to, uh, to write some software, and to, which took off to become uh, the language in which people write interactive fiction. So he's uh, quite famous as a, the designer of the interactive fiction software. And then after he's completed his PhD, and still uh, started teaching maths at St. Anne's, he decided to move uh, further and write poetry, and uh, now also is in publishing on the humanities side. So he's really a, a model of a Renaissance scholar. <laughs> now, as you can see, he's made a foray into history. So, the history of maths at this college. So, uh, I'm just going to hand over to Graham to enlighten us on that aspect of the college. Well, thank you very much. Um, so, as a historian, I feel I'm following a prediction of the future, which seems the wrong way around. But, uh, so, well, I'd, I'd like to begin um, on the 22nd of June, 1878, when all histories of St. Anne's College begin, um, at a meeting in Jesus College, where women's education in Oxford uh, was first thought of. So, by that time, the university chest and the seals were ancient, and there had been people called fellows pretty well forever. But the idea of Oxford as a meritocracy is only about the same age as St. Anne's, and for good reason. If you believe in meritocracy, you at some point have to recognise that women have merit. So <laughs> when people say that St. Anne's is a modern college, I tend to think, sure, but all colleges, as we now understand the term, are modern colleges. At any rate, what came of the 1878 meeting was a sort of parallel university, the young women were looked after by formidable older women, like the headmistresses and vicars' wives that they knew so well. Some of these women lived in newly built halls. So we have Somerville, Lady Margaret, St Hilda's and St Kentigern's. You may like to guess which one didn't make it as an Oxford college. <laughs> Others lived with family or friends, or they took private lodgings. And it was to gather up and look after those women that St Anne's College was formed, even though it wasn't called St Anne's and wasn't a college. We were sort of everyone else category, but in fact that made us the largest group. Nobody ever much liked our name, the Society of Home Students, but at least it was positive. It wasn't describing us as the Society of Non-Collegiate Persons. We wanted to be defined by what we were and not by what we weren't. We liked the Latin form even less, Societas Mulierum Oxoniae Privatim Studentium, or as it was often shortened, sock, mul, oxon, priv, stud. <laughs> In the 1930s, it was a typical Oxford joke to translate this back to English again as private stud of Oxford mules. <laughs> Every few years, the university gave us a little more status. It put our tutors into the pension fund in 1925, for example, and it appointed them as examiners to cover the men's uh, papers as well as uh, the women. So this might sound a grudging and slow sort of process, but in another sense, it did show flexibility. I think we shouldn't always see this as a fight for equality in which we boo for the men and cheer for the women. The pioneering women of um, these colleges were often fiercely proud of their university rather than resenting it, 
and many of the leading men in Oxford in the day were actually eager to help them. Well, our first principal, Bertha Johnson, was certainly one of the most influential figures in turn-of-the-century Oxford. She was a vivacious Irish woman born in 1846 who abhorred waste but was charmed by eccentricity. She had a canary called Billy. She lived the entire Victorian age. As a child, she saw the Duke of Wellington out walking in Hyde Park. The Crimean War made a lasting impression on her, which she remembered during the First World War. In a memoir that she wrote at the age of 79, she laments that in the 1920s, people had forgotten what a dangerous place mid-Victorian Oxford used to be for young women. They had to be chaperoned not so much for their morals, but because they were not safe on the streets. Street lighting was very bad, and Oxford had no police force at all until 1869, and not much of one after that. Even in 1898, the Society's students were advised to keep the location of the JCR a secret. It was briefly over what's now the Chequers pub, then it moved to an old curiosity shop in the High Street, which is no longer there, before settling down in a house in Ship Street, one of the old alleys off Corn Market, which I, for one, have walked past many, many times and have only recently learned the name of. So this is why the college magazine is called The Ship, and this is why the mural on the side of the hall shows a ship, if you squint long enough. Um, I actually think it's a rather fine piece of work, and it was renovated just last year by one of the curators of the V&A, and is much brighter. So if you get a chance to see it again in daylight, uh, do take the opportunity. So the college mascot is a beaver, because a beaver goes back to a home of its own every night, and also because a beaver is quietly industrious. Our motto until more or less the Second World War was fair sans dire, to do without speaking. Not exactly a feminist manifesto. (laughs) As time went by, the undergraduates complained that the beavers on Hartland House, which you can see at the top there, had been mistaken for everything from a rat to a polar bear. (laughs) The earlier students were overwhelmingly taking modern languages, English or history. So there was a false start in 1895 when Olga Mary Bishop tried switching subjects, but as the college register here shows, she gave up after beginning to work at math. (laughs) Our first success was Muriel Underhill, who was a grocer's daughter who took a third in Mods 1900. As you see, the college register isn't always easy to read. Um, This page has been written on by at least five different hands and was last written on in the 1960s uh, when Muriel died at a ripe old age. Well, I said that she got a third, and that may not sound glorious, but in those days there were also fourths, uh, and worse. Miss M. O. Atkins satisfied the examiners in Mods 1915. Satisfied the examiners is a typical Oxford phrase in that it means the reverse of what it says. (laughs) But we also had a few students who had passed maths exams at other universities. We had one from Liverpool and two from Cambridge. Maud Valtuk did a bit of teaching for us in 1906-08 before taking the veil as Sister Mary. Florence Isaac became a mineralogist at Somerville. The British maths in this period was really mathematical physics, so Sarah would have fitted right in. It would be an overstatement to say that the Society of Home Students was a lifelong mutual aid society, but in some ways the fact that we didn't have any real buildings made it a club rather than an institution, and people did keep in touch with each other. So the first reunions, like our meeting today, began over 100 years ago in 1911. Bertha Johnson, our principal, ran what amounted to a scholastic employment agency. So this is how I know that Alice Worsley, from Baileyborough in Ireland, who took maths mods in 1908, went on to teach at various convent schools and ended up as Mother Mary Hildegard. 
Charlotte Octavia Garnett, who took mods in 1911, was the daughter of a clergyman in Cheshire, and she became head mathematical mistress at Clifton High School in Bristol. Bristol. Margaret Gertrude Bailey, mods 1910, who came from Kensington, also retired as a headmistress. But being ineligible for the full Oxford degree, none of these women went on to do finals maths. They stopped after mods. Some, nevertheless, did complete in later life. And here, I'm very pleased to say, is a note in Miss Atkins's file showing that she triumphed in the end after all, despite only having satisfied the examiners. <laughs> an extreme example of this is Mary Woodcock, who passed mods maths in 1916, but didn't get her MA until 1951, by which time she was the college secretary. <laughs> and I'll just mention the intriguing Anna Sandiman. In 1917, the newly formed Royal Air Force asked Oxford to provide three women to make calculations at an experimental aerodrome, and she was one of them. She was given some examination exemptions for military service, according to the college register. Um, in case you are now picturing her with goggles and a scarf, I'd better add that she later took the name Sister Catherine and became Mistress of Studies at a convent in Harrogate. Full degrees for women came in 1920. This is a very famous photograph, and they changed everything. Bertha Johnson, it's worth mentioning, had actually opposed this earlier on, and the women of the society were divided on it in 1896, and then again in the early 20th century, which often surprises people today. The difficulty was that the BA degree had required a reading knowledge of ancient Greek, which you had to demonstrate in your first year of study. Public schools for boys almost always taught Greek, but grammar schools for girls didn't. So if full exam equality had come in 1900, let's say, the practical effect might well have been to shut women out rather than to let them in. What had changed by 1920 was that now you could offer the New Testament in English instead, as you can see for these, uh, from these regulations uh, for science students. Now, in some ways, the women carried on much as they had before. They were taking more or less the same kind of tutorials, but now they would, would of course, leave with a genuine degree certificate instead of a statement that they had passed the equivalent exams to get a degree. But in fact, the change was much more than a technicality because they were now full members of the university for the first time and that meant that they matriculated. They wore gowns for the first time. And they, of course, became glamorous creatures. They became known as the undergraduates. So newspaper photographers would try to catch them in the streets and Oxford generally seemed a fairly racy place all of a sudden. But just as most people did not actually swing in the swinging 60s, most people didn't roar in the roaring 20s. What St Anne's people did instead was to read books to the blind and to run youth clubs in the poorer districts of town. Women in that generation, uh, we often don't remember, were great volunteers. And the college economist, Christina Butler, who had got a distinction in her diploma in 1909 and was one of our first uh, sort of mathematical stars, was actually something of an anti-poverty campaigner and was a great organiser of the students. So here we have a Cub Scout camp. <laughs> So although women could now take the full maths degree, the problem remained that girls' schools taught so little maths that very few girls were eligible to begin the course. Begin, uh, between 1920 and 1940, we had only about a dozen maths students all told. All but three of them moved on after mods, much as before. This went on right until the mid-1950s, with some students adding French, Latin or theology to get the degree. So our first three right-through graduates in maths were a Miss D. Morley, who took a third in finals 1927, Miss J. W. Millman, who took a fourth in 1936, and Miss F. S. Hewson, who took a third in 1939. But we also had our first advanced student, and really our first pure mathematician. 
She was the daughter of colonial administrators in Jamaica, and I have to assume that they were poetry buffs because they called her Christabel Maud Cousins. In 1924, Christabel became the first woman to earn the Oxford Bachelor of Science in Maths, which is the equivalent of a master's degree today. Her topic, as you may be able to just make out there, is higher plane curves and certain types of curves having coincident multiple points or other special types of singularities, which is what we would now see as an algebraic geometry topic. So you may find it surprising that the number of math students was so low. We had only three finalists in maths in our first 60 years. This table, which has been drawn up from data collected by A.E.L. Davis, who's a St. Anne's Maths alumna, who, unlike me, is a professional historian of the period, is quite revealing. Not very many men took maths finals either. So uh, you can't quite tell from the contrasting colours there, perhaps, but you can see that the numbers for men are really quite low as well. This was the age, really, when the Cambridge Maths tripos dominated the British mathematical scene, and if you look at the corresponding numbers for Cambridge, they're about five times higher. So it's perhaps not coincidental that our first maths tutor uh, for what was still then, for a few more years, the Society of Home Students, was actually a Cambridge graduate uh, in all but name. And this was Dorothy Maud Rinch, who served from 1926 to 1939. She was a lively, red-haired young woman. She'd written a PhD on set theory under G.H. Hardy, and she was one of the bright young things drawn to Bertrand Russell. Her biographer, Marjorie Seneschal, thinks Dorothy wasn't one of his lovers, but we'll never know. Russell did ask her to take charge of the publication of Wittgenstein's Tractatus, which she did, publishing it in Germany. She was an energetic but bad tennis player, an energetic but bad piano player, and an energetic but bad writer of mathematical papers. Her work was original and clever, but she used her own notation, and she overstated the usefulness of her methods. Some of her friends called her Dot, some called her Delta, she signed her personal letters with a monogram of a delta inside a dashed hexagon. It was actually a bleak time in her private life. Her husband, who was a physicist at Balliol, was committed to an asylum in 1930, leaving her to bring up their daughter almost penniless, and the salaries that the women's colleges offered in those days were very poor. In 1939, she emigrated and she became an American professor of molecular biology. She was nominated for the Nobel Prize for her work on protein structure, and just this year her biography was published a study of character which I can thoroughly recommend called I Died for Beauty. Her model of proteins as a sort of woven fabric, though indeed beautiful, turned out to be mostly wrong. But she has her defenders even today who call her a pioneer of the modern theory of protein folding. So, between 1930 and 1950, we became a college in all but name. The tutors met as an informal governing body, though they found that meetings had, quote, an innate tendency to prolong themselves with discussion of details, a problem which is now, of course, solved. <laughs> piece by miraculous piece, we acquired the current college site. Our women were no longer sheltered in private homes as if they were adopted daughters. In 1937, we're told, the essential student has a passion for discarding her cap and cycling to lectures with a gaudy scarf on her head and her gown in a bundle with her books. She is more independent in some ways, such as social matters and vacations, when she bravely tours Europe. Well, of course, it soon became impossible to tour Europe, and in 1939 our German students had to go home. Some of our English students formed a production line in what's now the ground floor of the library, and they inspected 6,789,000 fuse caps, earning £482 in wages, all of which they donated to war charities. 
To the post-war undergraduates, this seemed glamorous or even romantic, like something they'd just missed out on. In fact, the people who did it said it was boring, soul-destroying work. And of course, it was also life-destroying. Those 6,789,000 bombs fell on somebody. The war was as real and horrible here as elsewhere, and it was followed by austerity and rationing. To the dismay of the proctors, there was eventually no black cloth left to make gowns with. Our luckiest students were the ones looked after by the nuns of Cherwell Edge, a hostel near the university parks. This was still a slightly authoritarian place. Quote, Friendly, rosy-cheeked Sister Eulalia roused us every morning with a tap on the door and, Blessed be the Holy Child Jesus, to which you were supposed to reply, Now and forever, Amen. But the nuns were good at getting the maximum food value out of the rations. Something which happened quietly in this period was that we became St Anne's Society, the name being chosen pretty well at random, with no convincing explanation ever given. It seems they wanted a saint who had had a happy life, but they did also consider St Martin's, and for a while the front-runner was St Hilary's, which is an intriguing thought for us. (laughs) And so to the 1950s. Farewell austerity, as the college magazine says. Young women stride the streets in striped jeans, reminiscent of the corps de ballet practising in Kiss Me Kate. We were officially a college at last, and we were the largest women's college at that. We had about three maths undergraduates a year. But at the start of the 1950s, our students were still mostly scattered across town. Elizabeth Morton, who's here tonight and who matriculated in 1951, had a room in Fifield Road and then moved to a hostel in Norham Gardens, but did her work in the Radcliffe Science Library. All my friends were from other colleges, she says. Because we had no maths tutor, our students mainly went to Ida Busbridge of St Hugh's or to Margaret Rayner of St Hilda's for their tutorials. Still, during the 1950s, St Anne's continued to become more collegiate. So this is an end-of-term report reading with the student in front of the entire governing body. (laughs) Tiny compared to now. Notice how much care the student has gone to with her hair and how little care they've gone to with theirs. (laughs) In January 1959, we finally elected a fellow of our own, Miss M.J. Kearsley. St Anne's continued to refer to tutors as Miss and Mrs. right up to the 1970s in printed documents, even if they had doctorates, as Mary, of course, had. No undergraduate dared call her Mary, then or ever. (laughs) She had briefly lectured at Manchester, but was still a young woman, and she went on to give the college 40 years of service, so I knew her well. The stories about Mary are legion, and I will get to some of them, but I don't want them to obscure her achievement, which was to found the St Anne's Maths School as a continuing body of people all gathered together. In 1961, Miss S.M.R. Smith scored our first ever first in mods. How I was rooting for Miss S.M.R. Smith when I looked up finals 1963, but I'm afraid she got a second, and the same thing happened to Miss Flowerdew two years later. But we scored our first actual first, I believe, in 1967, with Isabel Moss, who I'm delighted to say is here somewhere this evening. And Janet Wood and Rosemary Emminson followed in 1968 and 1970. We now took four to six students a year, and each year acted as college parents to the next, though they were called godmothers then. I have seen it claimed that St Anne's was actually the first college in Oxford or Cambridge to start this idea, incidentally. Maths Curry, the current student event uh, to welcome the freshers, is a much later scheme, and the earliest (laughs) reference... The earliest reference I've found is is from 2005. 
The students of 1959 ate in the brand new dining hall and used the brand new drip-dry laundry in Bevington Road, but their living space was pretty awful, in partitioned Victorian rooms described as being like coffins or like a corridor in some of British Rail's older rolling stock. So in 1966, it was a big day when the gatehouse opened. (laughs) These rooms are beautifully and cleverly furnished, we said. A far cry from the old cream and green of the women's colleges. Since college rooms are now used for entertaining, early and late, these must be a source of great pride to their owners. It was an age of optimism in Oxford. (laughs) There was even a proposal for a college sauna. The university was building all over town. The town planners didn't always like it. This was the year of the Mathematical Institute in St Anne's, the stack of shoeboxes which was built to the maximum height then allowed under planning law. A few of the documents from this period give a little bit of a taste. So I mentioned Rosemary Emmonson, who got a first earlier. Here's the telegram which her father sent us, accepting our offer of a place for her, which we rather quaintly call a vacancy. Notice that it's from her father, not from her. And here is an absolutely typical letter from Mary Kearsley, totally objecting to something. It runs for several pages, but the gist is that girls' schools are still too weak to make it safe for women to use the same Oxford entrance exam as the men, which was a genuine issue, even 40 years after Degrees for Women had started. She says at some point in her letter that she's very happy to put her students up in the same mods as the men after she's had a year to teach them, but the schools alone aren't up to it yet. And here's a typical tutorial report. So I've blacked out the name, though I don't really know why, because it only says nice things. Well, so at this point we had an applied math petition. Our first attempt to hire a pure maths fellow was a fiasco. We had only two applicants, a third-class BSc Manchester and a failed PhD Calcutta. (laughs) It's interesting that the mention of Calcutta there is clearly meant to make us think that was somehow a disqualification, which is another reflection on how things have changed. By contrast, we had 70 applicants when we appointed Dimitri in 2011, and they were so strong that looking through their CVs was quite a crushing experience. In 1969, however, we had a stroke of luck. We advertised for a part-time lecturer. They, of course, could be men. And as a result, interviewed a shortlist of three men and one woman, Miss H.A. Priestley, who was still a DPhil student then. It was clear that Hillary was not only going to be a considerable scholar, she was also an inspirational teacher of, among other things, complex analysis. We were so anxious to keep her that we actually turned down the university's offer of a post in statistics because then we couldn't have given it to her. And in 1971, we elected her to a fellowship without even advertising the post, an unusual procedure requiring a two-thirds majority of governing body. 1971 was actually a banner year for us. It was the first time we scored two firsts in finals at once, Uh, Linda Cox and Rosemary Parrott, who became a research student. We also had our first maths and philosophy finalist, Jancis Robinson, who became a wine expert and our first TV celebrity. Uh, There was also Marcus Dusotoy, who was very briefly a junior research fellow, I believe, and then Junaid Mubin, who we've heard from this evening, uh, but we didn't seem to mention earlier that he was also the Channel 4 countdown champion for his year. Maths and philosophers like Jancis Robinson were rare birds. We only had one each in 1975, 1984, and 1993, whereas today we have one every year or two. So, we've come to the 1970s. This was the last decade of St. Anne's as a women's college. It's impossible to generalise about the experience of being there because, of course, it was different for everybody. 
Here are two views, which I would like to say were not from people in this room. Firstly, many people are under the impression that all girls at Oxford have gay social lives and know many men, or at least have a steady male friend. This is not so. Many are in fact lonely and do not know how to extend the range of their acquaintances. Contrastingly, lots of us were on the pill. A prime recreation was sex, enhanced by the ratio of five, women, uh, five men to each woman, and the frisson provided by the rules designed to discourage it. The men on offer were skinny and unkempt, in tank tops and flared trousers, with a moustache if they could muster one. I think the truth about relations in the 1970s was rather in between, and much more like this picture. It was friends having tea parties, having clubs, having picnics. Throughout the 1970s, there was nevertheless something of a tug of war between the people who thought St Anne's should be a base of operations for adults and the people who thought it should be a boarding school for girls. In 1972, there was a protest against restrictions on visiting hours under the slogan, Bring a Man to Breakfast. (laughs) Well, so, in 1979, we brought men into college to stay. The Labour government's Sex Discrimination Act forced the timing of this, but it would have happened anyway. We began serving beer in the bar for 17p a pint, and, relatedly, got our first urinals. The new rugby team began the custom of food-throwing in Hall, and the men created an invade-and-conquer-France society. The first men among the mathematicians were Nigel Stock, Mark Thomas, Mark Walter, and Richard Woolley, who all graduated in 1982. As early as 1985, the St Anne's Math School was already about 80% men and 20% women, which is roughly where it remains today. Just to show that we all get along nowadays... Here are two of the nicest students we've ever had getting married. So this is Melissa, who is now a postdoc working on genetic sequence data about antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and Teddy, who is just qualified as an actuary and is here. (laughs) Hooray, indeed. Another St. Anne's Maths couple, Jim Oliver, one of my first students, in fact, who is now a fellow at Jesus, and Sarah Waters, whom we heard from earlier, who wasn't an undergraduate here but is now one of our fellows. To get back to 1979... The college's centenary history makes the extraordinary claim that we only had five fellows covering the whole of science and mathematics because, quote, experiments in the laboratories at night are not easily compatible with family life. Family life, you notice, is something that women have. But once the college became mixed, it was possible for the university to attach chairs to St Anne's, and our first professorial fellow was in mathematics, and he was John Kingman. He went straight from being Mr. to Professor, and when he left in 1986, he was Sir John Kingman. His CV has only become more stellar since then. Kingman's work is fundamental in human statistics and in questions such as how long we expect a random genetic mutation to take hold in the population. Peter Donnelly, 1996 to the present, works in the same field, and he's best known for teaching the criminal justice system what conclusions it can and can't draw from apparently rare events. Another meteoric figure who was also made a professor in his 20s was Simon Donaldson, who proved in 1982 that the shape of a four-dimensional surface does not determine how differentiating functions on it would work. There can be infinitely many different smooth structures with the same topological structure. Up to that point, the very widespread belief was exactly the reverse. Simon won the Fields Medal. There are very few institutions in the world who can claim a Fields Medalist, but we can. He remains a very active analyst. He's now at Imperial College, and he was knighted just last year. He was succeeded by Professor Terry Lyons, another major world figure in mathematics, 
who won the Polya Prize the year after Simon did. You can tell that the Polya Prize is for maths because it's officially described as being awarded in years not divisible by three. (laughs) Terry's work is in stochastic differential equations, which are used to model phenomena which are somehow smoothly jumpy, like stock market prices or Brownian motion. So we've now come to the 1980s. At this point, there are microwaves and sandwich toasters in the hall. This is the age of consumer electronics. But as late as 1987, there was just one computer in the whole college, a BBC Micro, usually kept in the Springfield room. We had our first maths and computing graduate, Neil Matthews, in 1990, but it remained a Cinderella subject. There have incidentally been several joint degree courses that didn't make it, engineering and computer science, physics, mathematics and engineering science, and even maths and economics have all existed at different times. But maths and computing did go on to thrive, and it's now a rare example of a big popular joint course in Oxford. Our first computer scientist was another professorial fellow, Joseph Gauguin, who was a practising Buddhist who had helped to introduce category theory, a sort of theory of mathematical theories, into computer science. He wrote a memoir called Tossing Algebraic Flowers Down the Great Divide, and the divide he refers to is between logical theory and computing practice. I think it's rather characteristic that he says here, um, always I have sought to discover things of beauty and present them in a way that could benefit all beings. But in St. Anne's computing properly began when Peter Jevons became our first tutorial fellow in 1999 and then rose to be a reader and later a professor. As Joseph was, Peter's a mathematician in disguise. He works in constraint satisfaction problems, such as how to resolve scheduling clashes, which have connections to algebra. Our first computation student, Dan Georgescu, graduated in 2001. Since then, we've had two more professorial fellows, George Gottlob, an entrepreneurial Austrian who works on search engines and how they can be made more aware of the meaning of what they search, and our newest arrival, Elias Kutsupias, who comes to us from Athens and is an authority on network efficiency, among many other things. These, I think, are topics showing how computer science has changed over the last half century. It's more and more about how to glue the worlds together rather than about standalone problem solving. So then, for nearly 30 years, the mathematics school was jointly carried by Mary Kearsley and Hilary Priestley. They were of two very different generations, and to some extent they were chalk and cheese. They were careful not to let their frequent disagreements show, had avant les enfants, but in truth, they managed very well. Mary was appointed in 1958 with the expectation that she would devote her life to teaching, and that's what happened. In 1971, Hillary, on the other hand, was expected to become a leading research mathematician, and she did. Her work is on lattice theory and the interplay between algebra and logic, where priestly duality is an important tool. This wasn't always a fashionable area of maths, but history has a way of finding fashion out, and its importance is now widely recognised. Hillary was made professor in 2006, and many people here will remember that we presented her with a giant set of treasury tags at our last reunion. (laughs) Her textbooks on complex analysis and on integration, the Old and New Testament, as we used to call them, remain the standard works. Many undergraduates helped to debug these exercises and read the proofs. I think it's fair to say that if Mary founded the modern math school, it was Hillary who grew it and developed it, bringing in new people, and she continues to teach as a senior research fellow today. Mary, I'm afraid, is no longer with us. I was at her funeral back in the summer. Many of you will remember her extraordinary anecdotes and their occasional tangential brushes with the truth. How the squirrels were attacking her garage. How she was arrested by the Yugoslav secret police. How the women of China were fascinated by her. 
Mary was spectacularly bad at keeping to a timetable and sometimes ran an hour and a half late. Her tutorials could be the length of a Russian novel. She admired Russian novels. She could also read Japanese. In 1998, she retired to her late father's house in Reigate, but was hopeless at domestic management, having lived in college for 40 years. Her neighbours, who found her maddening but wonderful, more or less adopted her. Mary made a whole circle of new friends and taught herself ancient Greek. Like many of the founding fellows of St Anne's, she left us a generous bequest. Our annual prize in applied maths has been called the Kearsley Prize since 1999, and we traditionally award it at our annual maths dinner, which, as many of you know, started because the students of the day wanted to invite Johnny Ball, the Maths for Kids TV presenter, to come and speak, which he did. So I'm not going to talk about the rest of the current teaching team because you can meet us this evening, but I want to finish on two notes of change in Oxford mathematics. Mary was succeeded by a new fellow in applied maths, Ben Hambly, who is now a professor of probability. His field is financial mathematics, but he's also worked on topics in analysis. And although our newest tutorial fellow, Dmitry Belayev, works on probability problems which are not very different, he is officially pure. The traditional English division between pure and applied maths is breaking down, and we can see that as a, as a physical expression of that over the road in our new palace, the new mathematical institute, in which mathematicians of all sorts are working together under one roof. My other change, though, is a larger one. I think Oxford was arguably a world-class university in 1878, really because of the position of Oxford in the British Empire and because it had very few rivals in the English-speaking world. But it's a world university today in a much more genuine way. So I made a straw poll of our current students and staff, and these are some of the places in which we were born. There are altogether 11 different countries on the board. The last thing I think I want to say is that the hardest thing to remember about history is that it hasn't finished. By 2050, the St. Anne's Math School will have changed and changed again. So we heard from Junaid some of the many changes which may come as part of that or may not. This is a living tradition, and when the reunion is held in 2050, we will be part of it. There are people in this room who will be there. Thank you very much. Thank you.